our guest speaker for this weekend is Dr. Nicholas Ellen. Uh, Dr. Ellen is senior pastor at Community of Faith Bible Church in Houston, Texas. Uh, he's the author of Understanding and Developing a Biblical View of Life, uh, Common Issues We Face in Life, and Every Christian a Counselor. He's a certified biblical counselor with ACBC. He's also the senior professor at the College of Biblical Studies and a senior member of the Biblical Counseling Framework Association. He's the founder of Expository Counseling Center and the host of Up With The Sun Morning Show. So please welcome Dr. Nicholas Ellen. Good evening. How's everybody doing? It is a privilege and a blessing to be back with you. I love this part of the world. There's two states I love more than Texas, Florida and California. Now, some of you don't like California. I don't care. I love it. When they asked me to come out there, those Christians that are still left, I enjoy <laughs> serving those brothers and sisters in the Lord. <laughs> So there are two states that I always say yes to, is Florida and Cali, but I am so glad to be here with you. I, I want you to do something for me tonight, and it's going to be very important we do this for the next couple of days. I need you to ask God to talk to you, not anybody that came with you. I need you to think about what God wants you to understand from all of this insight so that you can do what he wants. Because one of the hardest things to do is to focus on the other person's problems. Because the reality is you can't do anything about them. But if everybody focused on their role and their responsibilities, you know how much transformation could happen in the body of Christ, what could happen in the church, what could happen in the home. And so what I want us to do tonight is just, just if you would, do that for me. Well, not for me. Do that for yourself. Do that for God's glory. Because... One of the things I've learned over the years, even in marriage situations with my wife, we could fight about the same situation, and she keeps telling me about my blind spot that's still blind today. I can keep fighting her about the same situation, and I can tell her about her blind spot that she's still blind to today, and we always do what we've always done, which means we always get what we've always got. And then we come to something like this looking for a word for the other person. That makes sense? And they don't get it. And God is speaking clearly to us, but we miss it because he's speaking to us, and we're thinking, oh, I wish my husband would have heard it. Oh, my wife, I wish she was here. Oh, my friend. And it's a word for you. One of the things I tell people all the time is, if you were to do that, it could change the trajectory of any and every relationship. So I want us to process that because I, I see the theme was about hope, and I thought that was important to consider as we're going to talk about a lot of things in the next few days that don't seem hopeful, but they are hopeful if you understand them. But one of the challenges that I see with people with hope is that if they're not hoping in what God promised, not only are they angry with God and frustrated with others, they're miserable. One of the realities is that God never promised us that if we live right, pray right, study right, be good church people, that we wouldn't struggle or suffer. God never promised that if you do everything right, your husband will finally see it, your wife will finally recognize how wonderful you are as a man or your children, or we can just go on and on and on and on and on, right? And we get this idea that God owes us something from our obedience versus we owe God our obedience and for the reason why we're going to talk about tonight. I want you to think about that because where your hope is misdirected, your frustration will increase. When you find yourself mad at God, you're already starting from the wrong place. You say, well, why can't I be mad at God? Well, simply because God doesn't make any mistakes. And you're mad because there's something you want you didn't get. There's something you're getting you don't want, and you're not trusting his sovereignty. That's why you're mad. That has nothing to do with God and his perfection. That has everything to do with your mindset and direction for the moment. And so for you and I, 
there are some things that we've got to see. There are some big picture items that we have to process together tonight. And if we process these things together, all the stuff of the pieces I'm going to try to pull together with this, hopefully it will give you a context to think about life. And then your hope won't be in the change of someone. Your hope will be in the transformation of you through the one as he moves you along the way in this agenda that he has for us. I have been pastoring now for about, gosh, 28 years or so. And I've been teaching at Bible colleges for a while. And I've noticed something in marriage counseling and parenting counseling and all types of counseling and just sitting with people. I've noticed this pattern that I'm hoping that we can talk about tonight and, and kind of change up. And that's this pattern of problem solving. You say, well, what's wrong with problem solving? Well, the, the thing is, we believe that our lives are about solving problems. And so we, we come to counseling, we come to church, we come to relationships looking at how we can solve the problems of the relationship. And I want to say to you tonight, that's the wrong goal. That's the wrong direction. God didn't save us to solve problems. God saved us to represent him through our character. And what happens too often is we have a lower goal. We, we want to fix the marriage. Uh, we want to fix the relationship. We want to fix the, the parent. Whatever it is, we want to fix this, and that becomes our goal. And so we go to the Bible. We, we look at the Scripture. We get counsel because we want to fix this problem. Well, that is too low because some problems God wants to stay because it's building your character. God's goal for your life is not that all your problems are solved, that all your pain is eased, and you find all the satisfaction you want in this world. Let me suggest to you God's agenda, and from that, I want us to build on where we're going tonight with God's agenda in mind, and then we can think about all these problems that we have as we look at it according to God's agenda. So walk with me, and I think I shared this last year, and it's just one of those foundational principles that before I begin, if we can get on this road together, it can transform how we think about our lives. Now, we all agree, and if we don't, we'll talk on the side, we all agree that God saved us from the penalty of sin. Is that correct? We all believe that God saved us from the power of sin. Is that correct? We all believe that God will one day save us from the presence of sin. Is that correct? So if we get that right, you and I, who belong to Jesus Christ, who put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We have been delivered from the power of sin and one day the presence of sin. However, that's not the end of the story. Hallelujah. This is where black folks start shouting. All right, but anyway, <laughs> it's not the end of the story. The bigger picture is this salvation was not just from something. It was to someone. We have been reconciled to the Father by way of the Son and sealed by the Spirit of God. Is that right? In this reconciliation, something happened to us. Our position changed. We're no longer sinners. Not that we don't sin. We're no longer sinners. By position, we are now saints. I know we act like ain't sometimes, but again, we are saints. I mean, 1 Corinthians says saints by calling. So they had some issues, but he still called them saints. Not only did our position change from sinner to saint, our condition has changed. We're no longer dead. We're alive. We are now new creatures in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. With that transformation, God didn't just save us from something and save us to someone just so that we can solve problems. Our salvation is tied to this big picture, and I want you to walk with me in this big picture because everything that we talk about for the rest of the night comes back to us in this big picture. Whatever issues you're having with people and relationships is coming back to this big picture. Whatever issues you are having with finances or whatever it is is going to come back to this issue because ultimately this is what us as saints, our life is about. When God saved us from the penalty of the power and soon presence of sin, when he changed our position from sinner to saint, our condition from being dead to being alive is for these three central purposes. Please write this down. He saved us so that we may know him intimately. John 17, 3 says, 
This is eternal life that you may know the Father and the Son whom he had sent. And the Greek word for know is not just intellectual understanding. That's what I have to help my seminary students understand. They love knowledge. They don't love God, and that's a problem. Okay? And there are a lot of people who love knowledge when they love God, and it shows because they can pontificate on all types of theological issues, but there's no love and there's no choice to do what is right in the sight of God. God didn't save us to know intellectually. He saved us to use intellect to know him intimately. John 17, 3. But secondly, he not only saved us to know him intimately, he saved us that we would become like him in character. So not only were we saved to know him, we were saved to become like him in character. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, from glory to glory, we are what? Being transformed into the image of Christ. God saved you and I to know him. God saved you and I to become like him. And here's the third thing. This is where it becomes a stickler. God saved us to be useful to him, to be useful to him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Now, let's break down that good works because that's too generic. And this is where people get in trouble. I tell people all the time when I counsel them, if I give you generalities, you're going to generally do nothing. God didn't save us to be general. He saved us to do specific things in specific places with specific people. So this good work, if we break it down, it's based upon two realities. We are called into relationships with other people. And this good work is tied back to two realities for you and I. I and you, or you and I, that's the best way to say it, we are ambassadors for the king. Isn't that what it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You and I were meant to build relationships with those who don't belong to him so that through those relationships, not as we relate and serve, not as we share the gospel, but if God wills, somebody might get saved. But we're also saved to build up the body of Christ. We're not only ambassadors, we are called to be builders. Isn't that what Ephesians 4 is all about? Equipping the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ? So this good work, if we break it down, you and I were meant to be so intimately connected to other people that through our relationship with unbelievers as ambassadors, someone might get saved. Through our relationship with others that belong to Jesus Christ, someone grows in their character, someone grows in their faith because of the interworkings of our relationship. That's how we become useful to God. So when we talk about the good works, I'm not saying that we don't do a food pantry. I'm not saying we don't do those things, but all those things should lead to relationships that lead to being an ambassador or lead to being a what? Builder. So in actuality, if I were to break down all of what I'm saying, there are three things about you when you became a Christian that should guide and guard every part of your life. And I want to lay this out because as we talk about everything else, it will make sense putting this together. You and I have three roles and responsibilities that never change. Role number one, disciple. Disciple. What is a disciple? A follower of Jesus Christ, right? And what does a disciple do? Whatever Jesus tells us to do. Is that right? In our thoughts, words, actions, you name it, we first responsibility are to be disciples. That's number one. Second, we're ambassadors and third, we're builders. Now, if you and I understood that, now just think about what I'm saying for a moment. If we understood that in every context of our lives, then that means when you encounter someone, at the end of the day, you recognize something. Number one, if I am a uncle and I have a niece that's an unbeliever, I become an uncle that's an ambassador. If I an aunt and I have a nephew that's a believer, I become an aunt that's a builder but I'm always a disciple. Now, what if your life was truly guided and guarded by those three guardrails? What would be different about your dating? What would be different about your parenting? What would be different about your marriage? What would be different about working on your job? You would recognize no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, 
I am a disciple. I can't act like, smell like, look like, talk like those that don't represent Christ. So every relationship I go into, the agenda has already been set by God in that relationship. If they don't belong to Jesus, I am now building a relationship in hopes that as I demonstrate and give the gospel, this person gets saved. I'm in a relationship with these other people that belong to Christ so that through that relationship, they grow in their character and grow in their faith. Not that we can't have fun together, not that we can't hang out, go shopping, but that's secondary to the primary agenda that God set when he saved me. Now, if that were true about you, everything else we're going to talk about tonight, you'll understand why we had to go here first. As I talked to singles, and I, I told, uh, it was, I forgot, I think I was in Brazil it was a few weeks ago. I said, I don't want to talk to married people anymore. I want to spend the next 10 years with single people. Because bare people are just single people. You catch what I said? Let me say it another way. There are two single people being married, still trying to be single, wanting their way. So if I can help you before you get married, I don't have to deal with you in your marriage. If I can help you understand that before you were married, you were a disciple. Before you were married, you were an ambassador. Before you were married, you were a builder. But none of that shaped your marriage. You said, that's true, but now I'm married. Well, in being married, you are now a husband that is a discipler or a builder. You are a wife that's a builder. Perhaps you got saved and your husband or wife didn't get saved. Then you are a spouse. That's an ambassador, a builder. It did not shape your relationships. So now you're having problems in relationships because you're functioning outside of being a disciple. Ambassador, builder. Does everybody see the logic of that? And what's happening with our single people is why I'm trying to spend way more time with single people than normal. I'm trying to help them see, hey, listen, the goal of dating is not to hook up, to hang out. If you were to understand who you are as a disciple, as an ambassador, as a builder, how would that change the way you spend time with that young man or that young woman? What would be different about this relationship? What would be priority above she's sexy or he smells nice or he's attractive? or What, what would be the bigger issue here? I know they turn you on, but how do you help them turn up to Jesus? What would be different? Would you care more about what you can gain from them or more what God wants you to do with them? And if two people are functioning that way, I'm a little confused about what's going to be wrong in that relationship. But what we're talking about, guys, is understanding that we can't come to dealing with people and issues and problems until we have this frame of reference that I'm sharing with you. And so before I begin to talk about the problems, I wanted to help you see the big picture where the problems come from. And as I'm working with people, no matter what the situation is, if they're believers, here's what I share with them. And they'll go on and on. You know, they'll start when they were 12 and now they're 60 and whatever, when the dog died. I mean, and I'll listen to all of it. And I'm going to give you a framework of how to listen to it tonight and what we do. But they'll go from, you know, and then when I was 17, and then now I'm 40, and, you know, and I'm sitting there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And we'll go for hours. But there's a framework to all this that they don't yet understand, and that's what I want us to do for the next couple of days. And that framework is this. Based upon what's happening in your life, what is it about God that he's trying to get you to embrace right now? Because every situation in your life is an opportunity for you to embrace something about God that you're not. I didn't say you didn't know it intellectually. I didn't say you didn't study it in BSF. I didn't say you don't talk about it regularly. But embracing something and talking about something are two different things. Would you agree or disagree? And when there are problems in your life, there's always something about the character of God that he wants you to embrace. It, it takes us back to the Hebrews passage. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must believe that he what? Is. Well, what is he? He's a whole lot of things. And that he's a reward of those who... Oh. So in the midst of your situations, whatever they are, there's something about him that you don't trust. And it's time to trust it. But if you don't take time to focus, you miss it because you're trying to solve the problem Versus not understanding the problem is therefore a bigger agenda than you solving. 
Am I making sense so far? Second question I ask people, based upon this situation you're in, what do you think God is trying to teach you about you? What are some of the character deficiencies that are showing up right now that God is now using this problem, this situation, this person, this pain, this tragedy, whatever it is, to show you this about you that needs to change? You ever thought about your problems from that standpoint? What is it that God wants you to learn about him? Secondly, what is it about you that needs to change, character deficiencies? And here's the third question. As you learn this new thing about Christ that you start to embrace, as you find yourself embracing these character deficiencies that need to change, how could you now be more impactful in your relationship with the person or people close to you? How do you now serve differently? How do you now relate differently? Because God saved you to know him. God saved you to become like him. God saved you to be useful to him through being an ambassador, being a builder, because you're a disciple. Every situation in your life is about drawing you back to that. You say, prove it. You're having problems with your children right now. Well, what you don't understand is they're not a reflection of you. They have their own hearts. But you're trying to control them and make them like you. And we're going to talk about why you can't control them, what you can't control. But you don't understand that God's goal is not that you control them. God is up to something bigger. That is, what do you want you to trust him for? What is it about you that needs to change in this scenario? And how will that make you a better parent if you do? Not that the problem will change. Listen, I have two daughters, 37 and 34, or 37, 35. We have some of the same issues that we're still working through, and they're 37 and 35. I've become better, not bitter. For a while, I was bitter. God had to show me, the problem is not your daughters. I can change them like that if I wanted to. I'm sovereign. I'm God. I'm using them to expose you. You spend so much time trying to fix your daughters. But the problem is you. See, one of my daughters is exactly like me. Exactly. Which one do you think I have the problems with? And I'm in bed at night, and I'll say, that daughter of yours, that's what I tell my wife, you need to do something with her. She's getting on my nerves. And my wife will roll over, and I love the way she does this. Why do you think that bothers you so much, honey? Is it possible that there are things about her that are exactly like you, and God is using her to show you about you? I roll over. I don't want to talk to you neither. <laughs> the goal was not to change her. And you know what was funny? As I started to deal with those things in my heart, you realize my daughter started changing? <laughs> or maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought because the real log was in my eye and it was just a speck in hers. Know him. Become like him. Be useful to him because you're a disciple. You're an ambassador. Your builder. Those are the foundational realities about your life. We don't take ownership of that. And so the things I'm going to talk about tonight are connected to that reality. And as we embrace that, we can begin now to understand when there are situations in your life, there are some things you need to know. There are some things you need to understand. But before I go there, I've said a whole lot in a little bit of time. I love to give commercial breaks. So we're going to take about a two, three-minute commercial break, and then I'm going to come back and build on what I just shared with you. And then there's two or three minutes at your tables. I want you to ask and answer this question. So what? How does any of that apply to me? So what? How does any of that apply to me? Take about two or three minutes. When we come back, we're going to build on this principle to look at our first session for tonight.
All right, everybody. Back to our regularly scheduled program. As we see this context that I'm trying to build, and again, this context is for you to think about everything that I'm saying, everything I talk about tonight and tomorrow, so that you can look at your situations through this context. Now, all of us have to think through the passage of Proverbs 3, 5 for a moment. It says, trust in the Lord and do not what? Now, we can repeat it, but do we really, really understand it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Put all your confidence in this. And the Hebrew word for Lord there is Elohim. And it's the idea of the self-existent God that has no beginning and end. We are to rest in this self-existent God, to put all our, our trust, our confidence, our hope in. But here's where I want to start first. It says, and do not lean on your own understanding. Okay. To lean on your own understanding is having a human observation without a biblical interpretation. That's what that means, okay? Human observation without a biblical interpretation. And here's how we do this. And when people are coming to me with their problems, they come sharing their experiences, and they have a lot of pain. And, and my job is to help them see I am not trying to minimize your pain, your emotions, I'm not trying to minimize this experience. But here's the problem. Because we define our experiences according to our own understanding, we can't see the experience according to the reality of God. So part of the struggle that many people have, and sometimes people in counseling who are more concerned about the process than the person, they try to rush people through what I'm about to share. And they'll hear people, and they'll say, well, you need to do this, and you need to stop doing this, you need to start doing it, and they'll start quoting Scripture. Okay? And that doesn't work. You know it, I know it. I can tell you as a shepherd, that's never worked. What they fail to understand is you got to connect people to the fact of this experience is real, and we need to cry with you, we need to sit with you, but your understanding of this experience is inconsistent with reality. And for you and I, if I were to sit down with you, you've gone through a lot and you've suffered through a lot. But the reality is you don't see it the way God sees it. And because you don't see it the way God sees it, you're ticked at God. And you've got all these other issues going on. You believe God isn't faithful and can't be trusted and all the things that are going on in your heart because your view of the situation is outside of the scope of what we just talked about as to why God saves you. Why did God save you? Know him. Become like him, to be useful to him. Why will he let you suffer? Because through that suffering, he's trying to lead you to what? Know him. Become like him and what? Huh. But that doesn't fit the agenda you have in the moment. That doesn't fit the emotion of the moment. And so leaning on your own understanding, part of the challenge of that is you have brought meaning to your experience that doesn't match God's meaning for the experience. So part of the job, and I kind of kind of put it to you in the illustration, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Jordan to do some missions work and counseling. And we went to one of the malls there, and as we were walking through the mall, I was laughing at her and laughing with her as we were looking at all these different Americanized things in the mall. I'm like, now, I go all the way across the world to see Popeye's chicken. <laughs> I said, this is amazing, right? So we're laughing and talking about these things, and then there's a Nike store that they mentioned was in the mall. Well, I just like Nike shoes just because, right? My wife said, what you want to do? I said, let's go get some Nike shoes. Why? I just want some. Let's get it. We got some money. Let's do it. Now we got something. Let's do it. Because when we broke, we can't do it. Let's enjoy it, right? So we go to the elevator, and there's a map by the elevator. I want you to fill in the blank. The map said, you are here. Now, what if we disagreed with the map? Could we get to where we're going? And what if we had a debate with the map to say, well, we believe 
led us in this direction, not what the map says. That's problem number one with us. God has given us a meaning of our experiences, and we're debating with God over the meaning. And we won't accept that the scripture says, you are here. And until we can accept that God says, you are here, then we can't go where we need to go in order to do what we need to do in order to address the issues of those problems that we're facing. Does that make sense to everybody? The more stubborn the person, the more difficult it is for them to see, which is not my job to help them see. My job is to give truth, and God has to break them to see. But for all of us in this room, our biggest struggle is not the experience we've had. It's the definition we've given and the rejection of God's definition for the experience. And nothing is going to change in any given situation until you see it the way God sees it so then you can do what God would have you to do. Does that make sense? Now, some of you see it and understand it, but you're too stubborn to make changes. So the real question for some of you is, do you see it and you just don't want to make changes, or do you not understand it yet? That, for me as a shepherd, I have to sit down case by case and talk to people to figure out what's going on here. There are three reasons, again, why a Christian, I'm just putting this out here before we get to this, three reasons why any Christian is not obeying God. It's only three. It's real simple. Lack of knowledge, I just didn't know. Lack of skill, I just didn't know how. A lack of will, I just won't. So when I'm sitting with a Christian and I'm sure they belong to Jesus and there's a situation on the table, I'm trying to figure out, is this lack of knowledge? Is this lack of skill? Is it lack of will? Now, I have all the time, patience, and effort for one and two. Guess what I don't have any time for? You know what to do and know how to do it. I can't tell you anything. That's above my pay grade. That's a Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And I'm not going to fight, fuss, and cuss, and debate with you. If you keep yeah, butting me, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know what I'm going to do? Well, let's pray. I'm going to go home, watch the game, you know, talk to my wife a little bit, get some good food, you know. And then when God breaks you and I get that call at 2 in the morning, I'm ready to come back because you're going to spill some milk, and I'm ready to help you clean up the mess because I love you. But I realize you don't hear me right now, so I have to be quiet and let you struggle because not that I don't want to love you, but you're too hard-headed. You know what to do and know how to do it. We, we, there's nothing more we can talk about. And as a shepherd, sometimes I have to do what I call church discipline because your leaven can't leaven the whole lump. You have to be stubborn and prideful by yourself in the corner. Not because we don't love you, but because you're not willing to do what God calls you to do. You know what's amazing about God? He's given us, think about this biblically, we have been sealed with the Spirit of God. Is that correct? So we have the power of God within us, right? Philippians says we can work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Not work for, but work from is the reality because God is within us. You know what's fascinating about that? God will not do one thing for you, and that's the only thing he will not do for you. He will not obey for you. Think about that. God will not obey for you. He has given you the power to do so. And when I know I'm dealing with a Christian, I know I'm dealing with someone who has power. The question is, are they lacking perspective? Are they lacking skill? Or are they just being stubborn? Because they have the power. Now, bringing all of that to the table, because that's the foundation for what I need to talk about. When we're asking God for wisdom, we need to understand in asking God for wisdom, from God's perspective, wisdom is helping you understand how something works. Wisdom is helping you understand the good and bad that happens. Wisdom is helping you understand how to operate within that reality. Because the more you understand wisdom, you're understanding, okay, this is how life works. And God is helping me understand how life works. Think about the book of Proverbs. He talks, talks about the evil person. 
what they do and what they should do and how they suffer. He talks about the righteous. God, in giving us a comprehensive reality of wisdom, shows us how life works, how life should work, the good and bad of it, and how we are to respond. That's what wisdom is. But for many of us, we want God to give us wisdom to fix the problem, to satisfy our agenda. God wants to give us wisdom to bring glory to him, to transform our characters, to be more productive for him. This is why many of you are struggling. You want God to fix your husband, to fix your spouse, your wife, to fix your children, whatever it is, and you're praying, God, 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 why won't you show me? Because your agenda is too selfish. It's not about my glory. It's about you. You don't want to live according to what I've saved you to live for. Think about it. Did God save us to live for ourselves? So why do we keep living for ourselves and expecting God to co-sign on that? He's not interested in helping you be a better you. God is not our life coach. Okay? He's not looking for a better you. He's looking for a transformed you. That's why Jesus died for us. The moment we recognize that, we can change the agenda. Now, all of that comes down to a wisdom situation. What I want to share with you now about what we can and can't control, this is about a wisdom reality. And this is where we struggle in life because we don't understand this basic principle of what we can and can't control. Now, before we go through the slides, I'm going to talk a little bit, and then I want us to walk through the slides, okay? Now, I'll give you a cue when we're going to walk it through. If we understand this basic premise, this premise doesn't solve your problem. This premise helps you understand the reality of your problems. And this is why I try to help people. I can't help you change until I help you see. And once I help you see, then I can help you deal with your issues. We try to do B before we do A. And A is important because A is one of those things that if you learn A, you will see this reality in every situation you encounter and go... Now I think I can move in a different direction because I see this from the perspective of the wisdom of God. Now I can move through this. Now here's the reality um, of what you can and can't control. Now before we go into the details of it, take a sheet of paper anywhere, any sheet of paper, and I want you to have, how can I do this? A box to the left or a side to the left, side to the right, on your left, I want you to put what I cannot control and give yourself some space to write some things down. On the right of that paper, I want you to put what I can control and give yourself some space to write down. And then put something at the very bottom. Give yourself a little space at the very bottom of that paper that says, what drives my choices? What drives my choices. Are you with me? So to the left at the top, what I cannot control, to the right of the paper, what I can control, and at the very bottom, what drives my choices. Now, under what drives my choices, I want you to put in parentheses, I am motivated by either, and then I'm going to fill in the blanks a little bit in a moment. I am motivated by either, E-I-T-H-E-R. I am motivated by either. So what drives my choices, and none of that in parentheses, I am motivated by either. And I'm going to tell you what that is in a moment. Is everybody with me so far? All right. When I'm dealing with people, couples, problems, situations, this is where I tend to start. Unless it's a real serious suffering situation, I don't start here. I start somewhere else. Where there's suffering, we're going to cry, we're going to weep, we're going to hug. We're going to spend some time talking about the love of God. We won't go here at all because this isn't the time to do this, okay? This will be ugly to talk about this. You just got raped. I want to talk about what you can and can't control. You just got abused. That, that's not the time to do this. That's the time to love you, find out who did what, who do we need to send to jail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, in the normal issues of life, problems we have that are not tied to tragedies of suffering that we're talking about, this is where I would start. And I would have couples, and I love doing this with husband and wives. First, I like to push them to fight with me, okay? So I'll push buttons on purpose because if they're my parishioners, I know them, so I know what ticks them off already. And I'll share and say things and watch them go at it with each other. Ooh, and boy, we're talking about some rumbling. 
Ain't nothing like a married fight. My goodness. Married people can get ugly. Here's what I tell people all the time. The closer you get to anybody, the clearer you get to see and experience their depravity. Is that true or false? All the married people say what? Mm-hmm. And we don't understand that, right? And this is what I try to tell people in premarital counseling. I know she's sexy. I know you think he's fine. But wait till you get real close. There's some depraved things that you're going to learn about each other that if you're not thinking about love, you're going to think about leaving. Because the closer you get to people, the more you see and experience their depravity. And if you don't understand that, you get confused about why there are problems in the church because we're saved, but we're not all at the same level of maturity and we're walking in each other's depravity and we have to learn how to love each other. Because we're not perfect, we're being perfected. We're not sinless, we should be sinning what? As we walk more and more with whom? Amen. Now, with that in mind, I get them to fight, and then they get to huffing and puffing, and then when they're tired, I say, thank you so much for sharing with me. I'm glad that I was able to get in this vulnerable moment with you. But I want you to write something down. I have them write this down on the sheet of paper. Let's talk about, in reality, what we cannot control, and God gives us two things that we cannot control. What might they be? And they'll get to thinking about it, and they'll say, well, people? I said, actually, that's right. But we're going to get specific about people. And I said, don't put people. I want you to put your wife's name there or put your husband's name there. So put John's name there or put, you know, Catherine's name there. And let's get specific. According to Scripture, what is it about Catherine or John that I can never control no matter how hard I try? And they get the process saying, I don't know. I said, well, what about what Catherine or John are thinking? Can you control their thoughts? Well, no. Okay, write that down. They write that down. So you write that down. Thoughts. Can't control another person's thoughts. I'm proving it to you. I'm thinking about something right now. Do you have any power over what I'm thinking? <laughs> I'm thinking something right now. Can you control it? Anything I'm thinking, right? Here's the second thing you can't control. Desires. Can you control my desires? Will you ever be able to control my desires? I want some chicken, some ribs right now. Do you have any control over what I want and thinking at this moment? Okay. Um, here's the third thing you can't control about another person, their emotions. You can't control a person's thoughts. You can't control a person's desires. You can't control a person's emotions. I'm feeling something right now. Do you have any control of what I'm feeling? I'm going to feel something later on. Are you going to have any control of what I'm feeling later on? Isn't that interesting? So there are three things you can't control about me. I can't control about you. What you think, what you desire, what you feel, slash emotions. The fourth thing you can't control about another person, and I'm being very specific here. I'm using the word will, W-I-L-L, versus action. So let me be specific as to why. I can't control your will. You can't control my will. Now, if I'd have used the word action, someone who's very intelligent in here would have said, excuse me, Dr. Allen, I disagree with you because there are some things of other people's actions we can control. And I'd be like, you're right. Let me explain what I mean by actions. I can lock you up. I can tie you down. But your will to get away, your will to get up, I can't control it. You never heard somebody say, you made me sit down, but I'm standing up in my mind. I never, ever have control over your will or mine. You don't have it over mine. So, so far, what are four things that we can't control about the other person? What they, what they, what they, huh. And then what's the fourth thing? Their will. Not necessarily their actions. Got to be very precise here. Their will. Because I can trip you up and lock you down and do some things to hinder you but I can't ever control your will. And here's the last thing I can never control about you. Your words. You can say some of the nastiest things to me. I can punch you in the mouth. I can cut your tongue out. But you'll still be talking. True or false? 
So now let's process this in reality. Again, this is called reality 101. This is before we can deal with any issues. We have to start here. And the moment we understand where I'm going with this, then it starts to sink in as to why we are struggling so much in life because we don't see this wisdom picture that God is showing us. We're going to walk through scriptures in a moment. So wisdom, as we're learning, I can't control what you think. I can't control what you desire. I can't control what you feel. I can't control your will. I can't control your words. As it relates to circumstances, I can't control the outcome of events. If it's warm or cold tomorrow, can I control that? Can't control. If it's going to rain, snow, whatever, do I have any control over that? So at any time, do I have any control over these things? Never. So let's go to the other side of the coin, what I can control. Put your name there. So if it's your husband or your wife, family, friends, neighbor, you name it, there are five things you can never control about them, true or false. But what can you control about you? Oh, really? Well, let's begin to write this down because if what you're saying is true, I'm going to help you see some things that's a problem. Can you control your thoughts? Absolutely. What about your desires? What about your emotions? What about your will? What about your words? Huh. This is what I do in counseling. I say, Houston, we have a problem. Because, John, you have said 20 times that Rebecca makes you angry. But we have a problem here because if you can't control Rebecca and she can't control you, you keep telling me Rebecca makes you angry. But in reality, she can't make you angry because she doesn't control what you. So how did you get there? Huh. We're going to explore in a moment how you got there because it wasn't Rebecca that made you angry. You decided to get angry. But there's a reason you're angry. But as much as you want to blame Rebecca for your anger, if she can't control that about you, you can control it. Guess who has to take responsibility? But Rebecca, you kept saying that John hurts your feelings. Well, my feelings are hurt, Pastor. And, I, and I'm, Rebecca, I know your feelings are hurt. I'm not trying to say, but you don't know, you just said he didn't hurt my feelings. And I stand by that. But I need you, Rebecca, to hear me. But, 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 Rebecca. I need you to listen to me. Your feelings are hurt, but John didn't hurt your feelings. John disappointed your expectations. Did you have expectations for John? Yes. Who controls those expectations, Rebecca? So your feelings are hurt because of the expectations you've set, and you're responding to your expectations, Rebecca. Is that true or false? So John didn't hurt your feelings. He disappointed your expectations, but yet you couldn't control his choices, but you could control your expectations, which is why you're feeling what you're feeling, Rebecca, because the moment you believe John is in control of your feelings, then John has to change before you feel differently, and that doesn't match Scripture, and you just told me that he can't control what you feel. Oh. Are y'all going where I'm going? Are you seeing where I'm, where I'm going here? So, Rebecca, John, we have a problem because both of you believe the other person is responsible for the very thing that God says they're not responsible, which I'm going to show you in a moment. So, how did you get here? You know that little section down at the bottom that says, I'm motivated by? Huh. Well, let's fill that in now. Put the word ambition. Put the word motivation. Ambition, motivation. Here's the reality. Every time you make a choice, it's driven by the motivation or ambition of your heart. And there's only two ambitions that you can summarize everything down to. Love or selfish ambition. Every time you make a decision to think something, every time you make a decision to feel something, Every time you have a desire, every time you move in your will, every time you move in your words, all of that is driven by what's happening in your heart in that moment. And you're either driven out of selfish ambition in that moment or you're driven out of love. That's not complicated, is it? 
So now if we make this plain, Rebecca, you said he hurt your feelings, but no, your feelings are hurt by your expectations. And the way you responded to him, were you driven by your own ambition or were you driven by love in that moment? Yeah, but he, yeah, but yeah, but no, no yeah, but Rebecca. I'm asking you a straightforward question. You wanted something that he didn't give you, and you got something you didn't want, and instead of accepting what was happening and surrendering to God's will, you responded out of your ambition in that moment, not out of your love in that moment, and that's why you are where you are. John, you keep saying she makes you angry. You wanted something from Rebecca you didn't get. You got something from Rebecca you didn't want, and instead of operating out of love, you operate out of your selfish ambition in that moment, and that's why you keep yelling at Rebecca every time we get to this situation. She's not causing that. He's not causing that. Both of you have control over yourselves, not the other person, but you're not recognizing that the motivations of your heart are on display with how you're treating each other. True or false? Huh. Teabag. I talked about this before. I love to use this illustration because I think it just cuts through all the stuff. There are different flavors in a teabag. Is that right? And in those different flavors in the teabag... Doesn't matter what the flavor is, when you put it to the water, whatever is that flavor, it comes out in the water. Is that correct? So if it's orange or whatever the flavor is, as soon as it hits the water, the water brings out what's in the tea bag. Rebecca, John, first John, let me tell you this Rebecca is the water and you are the tea bag. Rebecca, John is the water, and you're the tea bag. They're not making you. They are exposing you. And you both came looking for a solution to fix the other person because you believe you feel the way you feel. You do what you do because of them. What you fail to understand in this moment where God's trying to teach you how to know him, to become like him, and be useful to him, what you fail to recognize is you can't see beyond your own ambition, which is why you can't be useful to God, which is why this relationship is where it is, because it's too self-serving, not God-centered, because your hearts are not driven out of love for each other. It's driven out of your own ambition. You want to stop feeling what you're feeling, you got to adjust your desires Change your expectations because John didn't make you feel that way. You want to stop being angry with Rebecca? Rebecca doesn't have to change. You have to accept that you don't get to control her. And she doesn't live for your agenda. She lives for God's agenda. And the more you operate on your own ambition instead of love, you're going to stay ticked off at Rebecca for the rest of the marriage. Because Rebecca is not the problem. God is using Rebecca to expose you, your heart. We haven't solved any problems yet, have we? But can we understand where the problems are coming from? This is where wisdom kicks in. Now, let me take that and let's walk through this last part now. You see what I just did? Now, look at your sheet of what you can and can't control. Let's walk through this biblically. Everything I've just said practically in my shirt, I'm losing weight. Hallelujah for the Lamb of God. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. Um, so let's look at this biblically. What I just did with you is what I do a lot of times is my first counseling session with people because I'm trying to help them see how to frame their problem. They want a resolution that moment. We can't get a resolution that moment because a resolution is about you being something different, not the person changing in front of you. Because if what if both of them saw what I just said? What would be different about their relationship the next day? Stop blaming. Start taking responsibility. My wife didn't make me mad. I decided to get mad because I wanted what I wanted and didn't get what I wanted. And instead of walking in love, I walk in selfishness. My husband didn't hurt my feelings. Yes, he disappointed my expectations, but I'm driven by what I want from him more than how I need to love him. So therefore, I keep having this problem because I just wish he would change versus me changing. And because I'm a Christian, I have the power to be different, and God didn't save me to focus on my wife changing or my husband changing. God saved me to know him, to become like him, to be useful to him. What if we both live to please God instead of living to please ourselves? What would be different about the relationship? Wow. 
God didn't save me to serve myself. And if you look at most of our situations, we are wrapped up in an agenda that's about us. It's not a bad agenda. It's just not God's agenda. Make sense? So let's practically walk through this. Now that we got it, you got your sheet in front of you. So we go from that to looking at this biblically. Number one, let's walk through the slides now. We cannot control people or the outcome of situations. And again, I'm not going to read all of this, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 11, I want you to notice verse 1, then we're going to jump down to verse 11. Verse 1, he says, there's an appointed time for everything. Well, who controls that appointed time? You skip down to verse 11, it says, he, personal pronoun meaning God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. God controls people in circumstances. Let's look at another example. Turn in your Bibles or look at this PowerPoint with me. We see also just proving that God controls. We don't control people in the outcome of situations. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 Verse 13 to verse 14, look at these words. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has what? As well as the others, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. The reality is you don't get to control the outcome of situations. You never have and never will. God controls this. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I, I love this passage. It says, for I've taken all this, chapter 9, verse 1, for I've taken all this to heart and explained it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether to be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Can, can I make that plain? People are going to be nice or nasty to you any time of the week, and you never have control over it. You can be sweet to people, and they just treat you like garbage. You can be evil to people, and they treat you like the best thing since life. You don't get to control how people are going to handle you. So, and it's what you can and can't control. Again, wisdom of understanding how to look at life, how to understand reality, because we can't begin to deal and resolve issues until we first think through these realities. Consider this. Next point. We can only control our own thoughts, our own emotions, desires, words, and actions. Let me prove it to you. Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the what? Who's responsible for that? So that means who controls that? Isn't that interesting? Verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Who controls that? So who's responsible for that? So notice, that's your thoughts. Look at the next thing, Proverbs 16. Next slide, please. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Who controls their emotions? Oh, you mean I can't blame that on Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, and Mike, and anybody else? That's on me? Oh, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Who controls where I put my desires? No one else. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Who controls what I say or don't say? We can only control our own thoughts, our own emotions, our own desires, our own words, our own actions. Look at the next slide with me. In the reference to your man of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit. And you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self. Who's responsible for behavior, your behavior? Ain't that interesting? Am I making this up, by the way? So who controls what you're thinking right now? Who controls what you're feeling right now? Who controls your desires right now? Who controls your words right now? Who controls your will right now? Why do you think that someone else or something has to change in order for that to be better? It's a lie from the pit of hell. 
you are where you are right now, not because of the people in your life, not because of your past, not because of your parents, not because of the pressures, not because of the pain or the problems in life. You are where you are right now because you've decided to make a decision based upon the motivations of your heart. And you're either driven out of selfish ambition or love. So next slide. With that in mind, therefore, we need to evaluate and take responsibility for how we are responding to people and the outcome of situations. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man, what? That he shall, what? And notice you only sold it two places, either to your flesh or to the spirit of God. The condition of your heart is not based upon the people in your life. The condition of your heart is based upon the choices you keep making in life. Please let that sink in. The conditions of your heart are not based upon the people in your life. It's based upon the choices you keep making in life. You're either sowing to the flesh, which means you're consumed with yourself, or you're sowing to the Spirit of God. You can't blame anybody. Now, let me get real country. Anybody. For that. Next slide. I want you to think about this. Therefore, again, we need to evaluate and take responsibility for how we're responding to people and circumstances. Without going into Galatians 5, 16 to 25, I love it whenever the Bible church, you've had much exposition on this. So we can break it down. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the what? And as I'm sitting with people in front of me, we start to look at the details of the choices they've made from their thoughts, their desires, their motives, and we help them distinguish. How much of your decisions are driven by your selfish ambition? How much are driven by love? Given that, look at the condition of this situation. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Why do you think it's going to be different? Next slide, please. We need to look at what's motivating us with people and the outcome of situations. See, this is where we get to the real work because that's where it is. What's motivating you? James 1, 13 to 14 talks about you're not tempted by God but by the desires of your heart that become lust, and we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. See, in reality... The problems you have are within in the sense of there's something you want that you're not getting and something you're getting you don't want. It's become the center of your world. And you're willing to sin to get it, sin when you don't get it, but you think it's everybody else's issue and problem. And you've been trained to blame the people in your life. You've been trained to blame the past. You've been trained to blame your parents. You've been trained to blame the pressures. And you believe that if they change, you're going to be okay. Not true. Not true. And until you accept reality, there can be no transformation. James 3, 13 to 16 talks about, again, the wisdom you're driven by, either the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world, and therefore, you have to look at what is motivating you. James chapter 4, verse 1, verse 3, next slide, shows us in the reality that every time there's a fighting between you and somebody, it's not because of the person. There's something you want that you're not getting, something you're getting you do not want. So we have to ask the question. Am I motivated by love for God or am I motivated by my selfish desires? Next slide, please. Am I motivated by love for God or am I motivated by my selfish desires? I love it when people tell me how much they love Jesus as they're cussing out their spouse or doing crazy stuff with their children or family and friends. You understand what I'm saying? Your words and your actions are matching. What motivates you? Now, I know we're in the church right now, and, you know, I always tell people as I'm preaching, it doesn't matter when you're in the church. The answer is always the same. Who won the World Series? Jesus. What are we going to do tonight? Jesus. I don't want the right answer. I want the real answer. And that's what you need to ask yourself. Let me stop there. You understand why I had to build the context before we got to understanding this? This doesn't solve your problem. 
This helps you to understand. People say, I want wisdom from God. I want wisdom. Well, God wants you to understand the good, the bad. He wants you to understand how things work. And then from there, we can move into resolution. But until you accept this reality, in other words, you are here, if you don't accept you are here, we can't move to any solutions. Because you know what happens? And I've seen this over and over again, whether I'm dealing with single people, married people, divorce, abuse, it doesn't matter. When we get to this level of conversation, when I hear, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know what they're telling me? I'm unwilling to accept God's wisdom for my situation. This is reality, ladies and gentlemen. This is the wisdom that you need before you can move into the resolutions that God has for you. If you don't accept this reality, we can't move forward. Because you're going to keep telling me about the people, the past, your parents, the pressures, the pains, the problems. You're going to keep telling me this, and guess what happens? You keep wanting them to change, and God is using to expose where the change needs to happen. This is why you can't help people until they want to be helped. Biblically. This is Life 101. We're going to stop here. Take our first break. We're going to build on this reality with one more thing tonight, and then tomorrow we'll get into more nitty-gritty issues. Amen?